The Voluntarist Handbook, a collection of essays, excerpts, and quotes by Keith Knight. 12. The Right and Wrong of Compulsion by the State, excerpts. Ober and Herbert. The Right and Wrong of Compulsion by the State. 1885. Ober and Herbert, 1838-1906, was an English radical individualist who was influenced by the work of Herbert Spencer. With a group of other late Victorian classical liberals, he was active in such organizations as the Personal Rights and Self-Help Association and the Liberty and Property Defense League. He formulated a system of thorough individualism that he described as voluntaryism. Each man and woman are to be free to direct their faculties and their energies, according to their own sense of what is right and wise, in every direction, except one. They are not to use their faculties for the purpose of forcibly restraining their neighbor from the same free use of his faculties. P.1. It is not by tying a man's hands that you shall make him skillful in any craft, especially that difficult one of living well and wisely. P. 3. E. Then if you believed that you could make men wise and good by depriving them of liberty of action, you have no right to do so. Who has given you a commission to decide what your brother man shall or shall not do? Who has given you charge of his life and his faculties and his happiness as well as of your own? Perhaps you think yourself wiser and better fitted to judge than he is, but so did all those of old days, kings, emperors, and heads of dominant churches, who possessed power, and never scrupled to compress and shape their fellow men as they themselves thought best, by means of that power. P. 5. We are fast getting rid of emperors and kings and dominant churches, as far as the mere outward form is concerned, but the soul of these men and these institutions is still living and breathing within us. P. 6. I must reply to you that your majority has no more rights over the body or mind of a man than either the bayonet-surrounded emperor or the infallible church. P. 6. One person will wish to regulate the mass of men in matters of religion, another in education, another in philosophy, another in art, another in matters of trade, another in matters of labor, another in matters of contract, another in matters of amusement. One person will desire to regulate the people in a few matters, and give freedom in many, another to give freedom in few and regulate in many. There is no possibility of permanent human agreement in the matter, where once you have ceased to stand on any definite principle, where once you have sanctioned the use of force for certain undefined needs of the moment. P. 9. Until they have done this. Until they have found some law by which they can distinguish the right from the wrong use of power. By which they can justly satisfy not only their own minds, but the minds of others. They are simply leaving in suspension the greatest matter that affects human beings. They are like men who start to make their passage over the wide seas, without chart or compass, and hopefully remark that the look of the waters, the face of the sky, and the direction of the wind will at any special moment tell them what course they ought to steer. P. 10. No man is acting consciously and with distinct self-guidance, no man possesses a fixed goal and purpose in life, 
until he has brought the facts of his daily existence under the arrangement of general principles. Until he has done this, the facts of life will use and command him. He will not use and command them. p. 11. But apart from this influence on character, which freedom and state regulation must respectively exercise, the answer which every man finds it in his soul to make to this great question, by what title do men exercise power over each other, must decide for him the general course of his own life. P.13. And now let us look a little more closely into the rights of the individual. I claim that he is by right the master of himself and of his own faculties and energies. If he is not, who is? Let us suppose that a having no rights over himself, B and C, being in a majority, have rights over him. But we must assume an equality in these matters, and if a has no rights over himself, neither can B and C have any rights over themselves. To what a ridiculous position are we then brought? B and C having no rights over themselves, have absolute rights over A. And we should have to suppose in this most topsy-turvy of worlds that men were walking about, not owning themselves, as any simple-minded person would naturally conclude that they did, but owning some other of their fellow men, and presently in their turn perhaps to be themselves owned by some other. Look at it from another point of view. You tell me a majority has a right to decide as they like for their fellowmen. What majority? 21 to 20. 20 to 5. 20 to 1. But why any majority? What is there in numbers that can possibly make any opinion or decision better or more valid, or which can transfer the body and mind of one man into the keeping of another man? Five men are in a room. Because three men take one view and two another, have the three men any moral right to enforce their view on the other two men? What magical power comes over the three men that because they are one more in number than the two men, therefore they suddenly become possessors of the minds and bodies of these others? As long as they were two to two. So long we may suppose each man remained master of his own mind and body, but from the moment that another man, acting heaven only knows from what motives, has joined himself to one party or the other, that party has become straightway possessed of the souls and bodies of the other party. Was there ever such a degrading and indefensible superstition? pp. 14 to 15. If the fact of being in a majority, if the fact of the larger number carries this extraordinary virtue with it, does a bigger nation possess the right to decide by a vote the destiny of a smaller nation? p. 16. You deny the rights of the individual to regulate and direct himself. But you suddenly acknowledge and exaggerate these rights as soon as you have thrown the individual into that mass which you call the majority. p. 16. I do not think that it is possible to find a perfect moral foundation for the authority of any government, be it the government of an emperor or a republic. p. 19. I see that the exercise of these energies and faculties depends upon the observance of the universal law that no man shall by force restrain another man in the use of his faculties. p. 19. Just as the individual has rights of self-preservation, as regards the special man who commits a wrong against him, so has a government, 
which is the individual in mass, exactly the same rights, neither larger nor smaller, as regards the whole special class of those who employ violence. p. 20. When we propose to use force against the capitalist because he forces his work people to accept certain terms, we are confusing the two meanings which belong to the word force. We are confusing together direct and indirect force. Direct compulsion, by whomsoever exercised, is only a remnant of that barbarous state when emperors and dominant churches used men according to their own ideas. Indirect compulsion is a condition of life to which we have always been, and always shall be, necessarily subject, it is inseparably bound up with our joint existence in the world. The richest and most powerful man lives under indirect compulsion as well as the poorest and feeblest. Mischief, that, arises when you make the existence of indirect compulsion a ground for employing direct compulsion. pp. 22-23. In exactly the same way he who uses direct force to combat indirect force only restrains one injury by inflicting another of a graver kind. Places the fair-minded people as well as the unfair-minded people on the side of oppression. And, by thus equalizing the actions of the good and bad, indefinitely delays the development of those moral influences to which we can alone look as the solvent of that temper that makes men use harshly the indirect power resting in their hands. P.24. Private property and free trade stand on exactly the same footing, both being essential and indivisible parts of liberty, both depending upon rights, which no body of men, whether called governments or anything else, can justly take from the individual. P. 30. If I tie a man's hands, and take from him his purse, I evidently constrain both his will and his actions. If I sell a man a loaf professing to be made only of wheat, and in reality made partly of potatoes, I constrain his will so that his actions are constrained. My fraud is force in disguise. P. 33. Now, a man's property is the result of the exercise of his faculties, is an inseparable part of himself and his faculties, and therefore, whenever his property is injured, his faculties are interfered with, and his will about himself, his faculties, his actions, and his property, constrained. P. 34. There are good reasons for remonstrating with him, or reasoning with him, or persuading him, or entreating him, but not for compelling him, or visiting him with any evil in case he do otherwise. P. 40. But our great uniform systems, by which the state professes to serve the people, necessarily exclude difference and variety, and in excluding difference and variety, exclude also the means of improvement. I ought to show how untrue is the cry against competition. I ought to show that competition has brought benefits to men tenfold, nay, a hundredfold. Greater than the injuries it has inflicted, that every advantage and comfort of civilized life has come from competition, and that the hopes of the future are inseparably bound up with the still better gifts which are to come from it and it alone. I ought to show, even if this were not so, even if competition were not a power fighting actively on your side, that still your efforts would be vain to defeat or elude it. I ought to show that all external protection, 
all efforts to place forcibly that which is inferior on the same level as that which is superior, is a mere dream, born of our ignorance of nature's methods. pp. 63-64. There are none of the good things of life. From the highest to the lowest, that will not come to the people when once they gain the clearness of mind to see the moral bounds that they ought to set to the employment of force, when they gain the loyally steadfast purpose to employ their energies only within such bounds. p. 67. Indeed, you will find, as you examine this matter, that all ideas of right and wrong must ultimately depend upon the answer that you give to my question, have twenty men, just because they are twenty, a moral title to dispose of the minds and bodies and possessions of ten other men, just because they are ten. p. 69. 